This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, sometimes it's overt, sometimes it's internalized, Sometimes it's brought about with the best intentions and with well-meaning smiles. But regardless of how you look at it, sexism is affecting higher education. We talk with our guest, Dr. Kelly J. Baker, about her new book, Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's a freelance writer who covers religion, racism, higher education, gender, labor, motherhood, and popular culture. She's written for The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Rumpus, Chronicle Vitae, Religion and Politics, Killing the Buddha, and The Washington Post, among other publications. She's the author of the award-winning book, The Gospel According to the Klan, The KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930, The Zombies Are Coming, The Realities of the Zombie Apocalypse in American Culture, and Grace Period, a memoir in pieces. She's also the editor of Women in Higher Education, a feminist newsletter in its 26th year with the continued goal to enlighten, encourage, empower, and enrage women on campus. We're speaking today about her recent book, Sexism Ed, Essay on gender and labor in academia. Dr. Kelly J. Baker, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So there's so much about this book that I want to dive into and ask about, but the thing that really jumped out to me, which I think is the place that I want to start, is towards the end of the book, you're writing about your voice. And you write at one point that as you were entering academia in college, moving out of high school into formal education, you found that your voice betrayed you. And it betrayed you because it refused to sound like you thought it needed to. And the problem was that it refused to sound like anyone but you. And there's so much there that I want to unpack. And so if we could just start there, talk to me about this moment when you were speaking as yourself and you began to discover that speaking as yourself betrayed yourself. I really want to understand that. What I realized very early on in college was that someone who was young and blonde and had a Southern accent didn't quite fit what people imagined an intelligent, possible scholar in the future to be. And so I worked really hard to get rid of my accent, but then I realized I couldn't get rid of the fact that my voice is high-pitched and that I sometimes sound squeaky and that it still didn't sound, right, the kind of serious, rich voice that 
I kind of imagined someone should be if they were going to be in front of a classroom, right, or if they were going to be seen as an expert in some sort of way. And so I tried to tweak my voice and tried to do this. And what I came to realize is that I couldn't actually change this, right? My vocal cords work a certain way. (laughs) That I, this is just the way I sounded. And I felt like (laughs) that this was just a moment where I couldn't control my body to make it fit what I imagined I could be. And I think that's a struggle that a lot of people go through, right? There are moments where you kind of imagine yourself one way and your body won't work towards that, right? You can't change something. They're fundamental. And that that was a really hard thing to reckon with, right? To live with this voice, to live with this body that didn't kind of match cultural expectations of what a serious scholar should be. Now, at several points in your answer, you use the phrase what you imagined a voice should sound like or what you imagined the body of a scholar should look like. And a lot of your book, Sexism Ed, is dealing with the genesis of that imagination, where it is that we get these cultural ideas about, and I'm scare quoting now, what a scholar or a serious academic looks like. And so as we're sort of staying here with this notion of your voice betraying you, talk to me about that imagination. So as both you've examined yourself and as you have been talking to others and writing these essays about sexism in academia, where does that imagination come from? Well, I think part of it is just the demographics of the academy. When we look at who ends up in more permanent positions in higher ed, it tends to be white men, right? So that's part of it. The other part of it is that in the imagination of pop culture, when we see a professor on screen, right? He's a tallish white guy. He might be middle-aged. He might be older. You know, he has a jacket with, like, arm patches on the elbow. (laughs) And, you know, he's in front of a classroom, like, imparting his knowledge, right? Um, Maybe he's a little bit grumpy or cranky, or he's the cool guy, right, who can stand in front of the classroom and call people by their first names and, you know, ignore his credentials. And so I think there are two things that were working against me. One is that scholars dominantly are a type of body. (laughs) And then the other is that when students encountered me, I'm not a tall white guy, right? I'm a short white woman who um, perpetually looks younger than I am. And so it was that mismatch is so interesting to me. And that mismatch is also about how we understand women and what women can do because of sexism or because of draconian ideas of what work should be and how all-encompassing it should be. And so for me, it was really helpful to see that things that I thought were my failings, right, as a scholar, often had to do more with my gender and expectations, cultural expectations about women than it actually did with my credentials, right, or my abilities or these sorts of things, that a lot of the decisions that I made about my career were taken out of my hands, that I actually didn't make a decision. I kind of was maneuvered in one way or another, which is why I think we see this pipeline is broken, is that women aren't making it through because of some of the structure of the academy that's not very friendly towards women. You use the word there, maneuvered, or being sort of, and I heard in that, a kind of manipulation. Who along the way is enacting that maneuvering or that manipulation? Can you speak to specific people along the way, or is this something much more subtle? Well, I think part of what makes it hard is some of this is subtle, right? 
so when you have a mentor who seems like he's focusing on men in your program more than women, right, you might think, huh, maybe I'm just noticing this and maybe it's not a real thing, right? Maybe I'm making too much out of it. But that gender difference in mentoring matters, right, from how you move from graduate school to a career after graduate school. You might notice that men get more opportunities for funding, right, for research. And that's kind of interesting to you, but maybe, again, you're making too much of it, right? So, and there's a subtlety to that that makes it hard. I think this also happens with hiring committees. One of the things I mentioned in Sex is Mad is that my marriage was always up for discussion <laughs> by hiring committees at a variety of schools across the nation where, you know, they would talk to me about my scholarship and talk to me about my teaching, and then they're like, this husband of yours, right? Like, what are you going to do if you get this? Like, what will he do, right, if you decide to move across the country? And um, I tended to get a little bit snarky towards the end, and I was like, you can figure it out, right? (laughs) But it is a sort of gender implication that wives, of course, would follow husbands wherever they would go. But husbands, like, would they follow wives, right? Um, Is this a safe hire? You know, is she going to step off the tenure track and have children, right? I mean, so there are all these kinds of interesting ways that our stereotypes and cultural bias about women kind of shift us around. And it's sometimes really hard to pinpoint when those junctures happen because it might not look like that or it might just be a niggling sense that you kind of have that maybe this is what's going on, (laughs) but it's going to be hard, right, to sort of pin it down. Now, I'm not a lawyer. You're not a lawyer, I don't believe, but my my understanding was, was that hiring committees asking you about your marital status is not legal. Am I incorrect about that? Well, it's a little, it's a little more complicated than that. Technically, it's kind of frowned upon for people to ask you, but the best I can tell, and I'm not a lawyer either, if someone asks you about this, they're not supposed to make their hiring decision based on that kind of question. So that question might appear in a job search, but then when the hiring committee goes in to evaluate candidates, they're not supposed to use that information in some sort of way. I think that's really murky. <laughs> and I think if a hiring committee already doubts that a woman is going to be serious, right, and then has a spouse that could play into that decision, that they're going to consider this whether they're supposed to or not. Right. That's going to be kind of lingering in the back of their head that I felt like as soon as my husband was mentioned, my candidacy took on a different tenor for people, right, because they then were trying to decide if I was a flight risk or if maybe scholarship was just a hobby. Most of us don't train for years and years to make something like this a hobby, but, you know, that's very much the kind of attitude that I faced a lot of the time. You said something else just a moment ago that really stuck out to me. So the hiring committee looked at you and wondered if you were going to, quote, step off the tenure track in order to have children. And what was implied there was this either or choice that you're either going to be a serious scholar or you're going to be a scholar with children. But men don't face that choice, do they? Oh, no, no. And I mean, what's interesting to me about this is the more I dug into this, studies actually show that men with children do better in the academy because it makes them look stable and they get more money for salary negotiations because you have to take care of their families, right? Whereas the exact opposite happens with mothers where they make less, right, than even single men and single women. And they are understood as somehow less competent, right, employees. There's mommy bias in workplaces all over. But this kind of interesting thing that when my partner was on the job market, everyone's like, oh, it's great. He has a wife and a kid, right? Um, But with me, they're like, you already have a child and you have a husband, right? Um, So it very much felt like I had to kind of 
pick one of these when I wanted to be both. And women are both, right? It's not an either-or decision. But again, that kind of assumption that became a problem there for me. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's an independent scholar and a freelance writer who covers religion, racism, higher education, gender, labor, and a variety of other subjects. We're talking today about her recent book, Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's a freelance writer and independent scholar who covers religion, racism, higher education, and a variety of other subjects. We're discussing her recent book, Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia. In the last segment, you made a statement about the notion that sometimes gets put on the process of the leaky pipeline or the broken pipeline that women make the choice to leave academia or they make choices that harm or hamper their careers. And at various points in your book, you refer to this as a concept called enlightened sexism. So I'd like to take a moment and start out this segment by asking for the differences between what we might call overt sexism or structural sexism and a more enlightened form of sexism. So this is a term from media scholar Susan Douglas, which I love, which is this idea that certain people are going to imagine because of their progressive values, right, or their commitment to equality, or that they have PhDs, that they can't possibly be sexist, that they are somehow transcended sexism. And I think this would even apply to something like racism or ableism or heterosexism, right, that it could apply to a lot of these terms. But the idea is that they kind of imagine they're beyond these kinds of concepts. And that they know better. (laughs) So when they act in ways that are sexist, perhaps judging mothers as incompetent would be a good example, perhaps assuming that women are inherently not as smart as men, that they might not actually recognize those biases because they assume that they kind of know the terrain of what sexism would look like, particularly that overt sexism that we kind of imagine, right, where um, people are just kind of blatantly (laughs) misogynistic or very clearly anti-woman, where they're using slurs or they're attacking women about their looks or things that end up being harassing behaviors. And so enlightened sexism is that kind of sexism that lurks when we don't, pay attention to the way that gender bias works. 
right, and sort of question those assumptions that we have about why we're making these kinds of decisions. And so structural sexism, which I also talk about in the book, is when institutions or workplaces have policies and practices and styles of tenure and promotion and hiring, right? So all the kind of apparatus of things that define your institution that work against women. And so this might happen in salary negotiations, right? Or this could happen in hiring where someone's evaluating resumes and they evaluate men, which we know from studies, on their potential. What can they potentially do? Whereas most hiring committees evaluate women on what they've done. <laughs> so you know, fundamentally, there's already a difference here. And those add up, right, those kinds of practices and policies, but also cultures of these spaces can really add up to make it where women can't get ahead because there are always barriers in the way. So I also heard something else in your answer as you were speaking about this, and that is that there can be times when even though the notion of enlightened sexism, the notion that somehow women are choosing for their self-interest to get out of the process, that can be a dangerous concept. Did I also hear implied in what you were saying that women have internalized sexism and gender biases themselves so that they work against themselves sometimes in these processes? Did I hear that or am I just imagining that? Um, I don't know if you heard it, but I think I think that's a part of it, right? Internalized sexism is real and it is something that weighs women down too, right? And when we talk about something like imposter syndrome, where women are convinced that we don't have enough credentials or we can't do something because you know, it seems like out of our reach. Part of that is gendered socialization about what women can and can't do that you learn to embrace. And it's something that I even still struggle with, is especially imposter syndrome, where I'm like, maybe it's just not good enough, right? Or maybe I shouldn't do this. Or maybe someone else would be better at this, right? Or maybe, you know, and it's those kind of or maybes that really start to weigh you down. So not only are you dealing... <laughs> With gender bias, right, in academia, you're also dealing with the voices in your head that are saying, you don't meet cultural expectations. Are you really competent enough? Are you really smart, right? Can you really do this? So that it's really a battle on multiple fronts. This notion of it being a battle on multiple fronts, if I'm hearing all this correctly, one of the phrases that you that you quote in your book, Sexism Ed, that really kind of summed it up for me is a phrase that you attribute to Rebecca Solnit, who wrote the pivotal essay, Men Explain Things to Me. It's the concept of women being able to be reliable witnesses to their own lives and experiences. Right. And what I'm hearing right. in, what, in what you're saying is that the pervasiveness of sexism, overt, structural, enlightened, and internalized, that at every step of the way makes women at every step of the process doubt the viability of their own witness about their own experience. Am I hearing that correctly? No, I think that's exactly correct. And I, I go back to that phrase time and again. Rebecca Solnit is one of the best thinkers on um, gender and sexism, among other things, right? But this idea that women are somehow inherently not even reliable <laughs> to describe our own experiences. Like, wow, right? And I feel that tug. And I talked about this a little bit earlier about the sexism that kind of bothers you, right? And you think it might be sexism, but really, can you trust yourself? And I think about all the experiences that I've had in the academy where that's happened, where I think, wow, that was kind of odd, kind of felt like sexism. And I'm like, is it though? Maybe I'm making too much of a big deal out of this. 
maybe I'm being dramatic or hysterical, right, which are labels that we love to put on women in some sort of way, um, so that I do question my experiences. And I think other people do, too. Other women really do, right, because we kind of have this barrage of, can we trust you, <laughs> right, and can we even trust you to talk about your own lives? And I think that's part of why the Me Too movement has taken on so much right now as well, is that women are saying very firmly, we are reliable. This is what happened to us, and it's terrible. And we're going to make you bear witness, right? Like, we're going to let you kind of see this in a certain way, and we're going to be firm in that truth that is our truth and not let you erode this reliability, right, or this ability to own our own experiences. I'm thinking about the Greek philosophy that I read when I was an undergraduate and Aristotle basically saying that women come about because it was a a deformed man, you know, basically an ill southerly wind blew during conception. And so we see this again and again, the whole notion, and you're you're hitting on it, the whole notion that your body, because of your body, because of your embodiment, you can't possess this knowledge. I mean, it's almost like an epistemological truism, a notion of what knowledge can be and who can bear it. That's incredible to be confronted with that as a man who participates in the power and the benefit of power of this. And it makes makes me aware of the number of times that I have seen in the media a woman speaking about her experience and then a man countering and saying, well, I didn't see that happen. The implication being that because because the man didn't see it happen, it must not be true. That's that's infuriating. No, it's infuriating, and a friend of mine and I often sort of joke via text message, like, well, I'm exhausted today, right, because men have explained to me (laughs) that I don't know what white supremacy is, right? Like, today is a day where everyone's come out of the woodwork to tell me that the thing that I am the expert in, right, that I've worked so hard for, that I can't. I can't possibly know, right, because of the body and I inhabit. Or, you know, the encounters that I would have with students where they would be like, you have a PhD, right? You? You standing in front of us? And I'm like, I've had it for a while, you know, and I write books. <laughs> but again, it's that, that, again, that kind of idea that something about women's embodiment doesn't fit with what people imagine knowledge or expertise, right, or scholars look like. But it's more nefarious, too, which is why I like the Solnit quote, right, about how women aren't allowed to be reliable witnesses, is that even things that we experience, men question, right? Like, that our word about what happened is not enough. And how disconcerting that is, right, to experience that over and over and over again. And again, the kind of idea that men are not questioned that way, particularly white men, right? Um, that there's this kind of way in which they are authority, right? They are the body of authority. You can't question them. <laughs> and the kind of like, and, and thinking through um, how those cultural messages come across then, how our media handles things like that, and the lack of interrogation sometimes of how this is able to play out. I've joked sometimes with my wife that if I were to shave off my beard and put on a suit, I could basically walk into any building if I just carried myself with with enough authority. And that brings to mind one of the moments that you talk about in your book, Sexism Ed, where you're talking about being at a job interview where you're giving a talk about your area of expertise and a professor in this all-male faculty pipes up from the back of the room about an article that he read some years ago with outdated scholarship – 
And nothing that you brought to the table could convince him that this one article didn't mean that you were wrong. Right, right. And I mean, and that's kind of indicative of experiences that I've had that are smaller or larger than that, right? But this idea that he read this article once about the Klan (laughs) somehow gave him more authority than the years I spent in archives, right? Or working through other scholarship on the Klan or thinking through how to transition from a dissertation to a manuscript, right? Or thinking about the theoretical underpinnings that something like this would need, right? That all of that could be blown away in one comment. I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous thing, right? To say, how dare you? (laughs) Right? Like, how is it possible that you think that you can just kind of wash away all of this with one kind of ill-formed comment? But that happens. And it happens again and again. And um, I was younger then, and it was a little bit more emotionally overwrought for me. Now I'm kind of like, here we are again. I'll make it through. (laughs) But that's formative, right? And that a lot of women don't recover from that kind of thing, right? That kind of erosion of your authority, your expertise, your intelligence, your ability to do your job, right? That for some women, that's overwhelming and not something to get past and you internalize it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's an independent scholar and freelance writer who covers a variety of subjects, including religion, racism, higher education, gender, labor, and motherhood. We're talking about a book that brings all of those subjects together, Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker about her recent book, Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia. Well, the tagline of your book, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia, brings up the notion of labor and the workforce. And one of the things that you come back to again and again in this book is how these issues of sexism, both structural, enlightened, and internalized, how all these issues of sexism play into the economic precarity that academics are facing in increasing ways, particularly in the past 10 to 15 years. So first of all, let's talk about this notion of contingency. When we use this word of academic contingency, what does that word mean? Yeah, this is a good question because a lot of people outside the academy are not necessarily familiar with this language of contingent workers. So in the academic context, what this means is that these are workers who often are instructors of classes, but they are contract workers. And so this means that they might only be hired for a semester, right, to teach a certain amount of classes. Or sometimes departments are generous and they give you a full year contract, (laughs) 
<laughs> so you know that you'll teach for two semesters. But these are at-will employees, right, who it's entirely up to departments and their schools to determine if they're going to stay on. Oftentimes, we call them adjuncts in the academy. I was both an adjunct where I taught semester to semester. Eventually, I became a full-time lecturer, which meant I got a year-long contract, right, to guarantee that I'd have employment for a year. And then there was always a really hairy month or two where I didn't know if I would be employed the next year (laughs) because there was no guarantee. It is the case that in higher ed, more and more when universities are hiring, they are hiring these contingent workers instead of full-time workers that would fall under the tenured system. So they're hiring these instructors instead of hiring people into the tenure track, right, where you would lead to more secure employment. So oftentimes when we're talking about things like race or gender, we hear the term intersectionality. And so let me take a stab at this and see if I've got intersectionality, how I understand that in this particular case. So we're talking about sexism, gender bias that affects the careers of women in academia. But now we're also talking about a second trajectory. It's a trajectory that is affecting not just women, but many new PhDs that they can't find the kind of brass ring job, the tenure track job. And instead, they're strung along on these very precarious semester to semester or year to year contracts where they could be the rug could be pulled out from under them at any given time. And so that becomes then a double pressure on a new scholar who's trying to figure out career and and how they want their life to go, because not only do they not have the assurance of their colleagues standing up for them in the case of sexism, but now they also don't have the assurance of their tenured colleagues standing up for them in terms of their employment. So what I'm seeing here is we're seeing an intersection of two different types of double-tiered systems. The, the men are on top, the women are on bottom, the tenured professors are on top, the precarious professors or the precarious instructors are on bottom. First of all, am I seeing that right? No, I think that's correct. I worked in an apartment once where they actually visualized this for us on our board of new faculty, right? So they took pictures of all of us and then put a board up. And so it was like a pyramid, right? So you had like the head of the department and then full professors in a tier and then associate professors in a tier and then assistant professors, right? Who hadn't quite gotten tenure. And then all of us lecturers were at the bottom, <laughs> right? And it's one of those things where I walked by it every day as I went to my office and thought like, well, at least we're clear about our expectations. <laughs> and unsurprisingly, you know, it was one of those things where you could also see where women landed, right, in the department <laughs> and what kind of roles that they had. And it was sort of an interesting thing. And I think about that chart a lot because it's so indicative of the way labor still works in the university. Women are overrepresented in contingent positions. And, and we know that scholars of color are also overrepresented in contingent positions. And so that kind of intersection for women of color makes it even more problematic for them in their job search. So it's compounding race and gender here that make it even harder. And I think we have to pay attention to where those intersections of oppression lie so that you can see it and how it plays out in academic labor. You can see it how it plays out in full-time hiring. And at a lot of universities, the faculty and staff are still primarily white. And oftentimes, they're white men, right, with white women coming in that kind of second category when we look at employment. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's a writer and independent scholar. We're discussing her recent book, Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia. Well, I have some listeners who are on the conservative side, and they would hear what you're saying about tenure, and they'd say, getting rid of tenure is a good thing because it gets through the deadwood, and it gets rid of those that aren't doing their job, quote-unquote, or can't cut the mustard, and that tenure protects those that would be just lazy and kind of coasting by. Is is that your position, I, or do you have a different position on your critique no, of tenure? No, I, I, um, that is not my position. I am definitely not in the, like, kick the lazy bums out <laughs> sort of move towards tenure. For me, it's that kind of question about when you have a small individual group of people who have tenure and have economic stability, they have stable employment, this sort of thing, compared to the large majority of academic workers who don't, right? That part of what concerns me is that tenure feels like just a privilege for the few, right, instead of a guarantee for more people. So that part of my critique is like, let's look at this system and see who it privileges, right, and who it doesn't. And for me, I would rather see a more expansive tenure system where scholars have stability, right, economic, job security, these sorts of things. And so my critique more is about how tenure works right now than being like, oh, no, we just have to get rid of it because folks are just holding spaces. I'm definitely not down for that critique. Well, let me continue to play devil's advocate for certain of my listeners. So I know that some of my listeners are also coming from a more evangelical or fundamentalist worldview. And so I want to raise the issue of complementarity, the notion that women and men are just built differently by our creator. And therefore, the kinds of issues that you're raising and calling sexism, that's more just the natural order of things. How would you respond to that kind of position? Oh, I have so many thoughts. Part of what I should say here is that I just don't buy this argument that there are these fundamental differences between um, these kind of natural fundamental differences is what I'll say between women and men. And part of that is, again, this idea that I have about how culture impacts bodies, right? So if there are differences, I would argue that a lot of this is culture, right? That's ossified around what a man is supposed to be and what a woman is supposed to be. And so I do see sexism, right? I do see it as a part, like, of our culture, right? It's part of the structure. It's not like a bug, right, if we're going to use, like, computer lingo. It's a feature, you know, in, in the way that this works. So I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about those sorts of arguments. I used to teach a gender and religion class, and one of the things that I first started with was a book on neuroscience, which the students are always like, what are you, what are you doing, right? And what it was is a neuroscientist who's talking about the malleability of brains, right, and what brains look like from our earliest stages to when we get older, and about the similarities. There are more similarities, right, in the way that men and women's brains develop than there are differences, but that something happens when we get more and more introduced to culture, right? Like that culture actually impacts what our brains do in a certain way. And I always sort of offer this up to students to think about why we immediately want to say fundamentally different, right? Or we immediately want to say different planet, which was a style from the 90s uh, in how we would understand men and women, and say instead, like, let's focus on the sameness. Let's focus on what's similar here 
and think through those similarities before we immediately grab onto differences. Well, and one of the things that sort of dovetails with this in your book is there's a couple of essays where you deal with the notion of men who try to be allies and who try to come alongside women as they are struggling for gender parity and equality. And I found that discussion in the book to be very nuanced, and I learned a lot from it. But I'm wondering if you could give a quick gloss to our listeners where the pitfalls might be for the men who sort of say, I'm a feminist and I'm on your side. Where does the trouble lie? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to this kind of idea of enlightened sexism again, that there are men who probably are like, I'm feminist and I'm an ally, right? And they even put it in their Twitter bio, hashtag feminist, hashtag ally. And I want men to be feminist. (laughs) I want men to be allies. What I would say is that in practice, this sometimes doesn't work, right? That there are men who are feminist who are also avidly objectifying women. That there are men who are feminist who think that that feminism, their claim to feminism, somehow means that they are no longer sexist. So again, they stop kind of paying attention to those cues. I've had men who are feminists start calling me names, gendered insults, when I don't agree with them. <laughs> Which is usually my moment where I'm like, oh, not really as much of an ally as you think you are, right? As if you immediately turn to gendered slurs that... They claim to be feminist and then accuse me of getting ahead because I'm a woman, (laughs) right? Like somehow, you know, that inhabiting a woman's body means that people ask me to do things, not because of my credentials or, or something like this. And so it's a cautionary essay and that I want us to think really carefully about how those terms are used. And to think really carefully, too, about the actions of people who claim to be allies. And this is part of my commitment that I don't call myself an ally when I'm talking about my work and anti-racism, right? I don't use this language because I don't get to proclaim that I'm an ally, right? The people that I'm working with can claim that I'm their ally because I'm helping them or doing something. But it's not a label that I get to proudly proclaim for myself. Right. It's a, it's a label that someone else should gift to you because of the work that you're doing. And so it's that disjuncture between the talk that we talk versus what we actually do when it comes to action. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's a writer and independent scholar. We're discussing her recent book, Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me. But if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. 
This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's an independent scholar and writer. We're discussing her recent book, Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia. One of the things that I learned from your book, Sexism Ed, is this notion of women as kinkeepers and care workers, the notion that, that oftentimes women are put in the role of being the one to maintain the social relationships amongst a family or a network of people. And I was struck by that because in a career where you all already have to attend to so many details, the notion that you would also be expected to be attending to the details that are invisible seems like just an added burden sometimes. And first of all, am I understanding this correctly, that kinkeeping and care working is that kind of unseen network of connections that you're maintaining because of your social place in that network? No, it, it exactly is, right? It's a form of emotional labor. So that what you're doing is the heavy lifting here of staying in touch with relatives, right? Or sending birthday cards or organizing a baby shower like I'm about to do. <laughs> In a couple weeks, or you are keeping track of your children's friends and their parents and staying in touch, right? So it's all of the stuff that women often do that is about building your network and keeping it, actually keeping it coherent and keeping it consistent, consistent and helping it move so that women tend to be the ones that people expect to do this. But if my kid is sick at school, they're going to call me first. Just basic stuff like that. They're they're not going to ring up my partner and be like, we have an issue, right? They're going to call me first because I'm mom. And so thinking through that on top of everything else, right? On top of my job, on top of trying to keep my kids healthy and fed, right? And navigating what it means to make them into decent human beings, right? It's also emotional labor that I'm doing too. And it's, and it's just kind of constant. And I think what makes it so burdensome is the expectation that women are the ones to do this work, that it's not like we're going to half it, <laughs> um, you know, uh, in some sort of way, but that women are the ones that are expected to do this. And that there are consequences for women who are bad at this or who just opt out of it, right, or who are ambivalent about it in some sort of way. So I want to pivot from that idea of kind of other care or kin maintenance, kin keeping, and I want to ask about self-care, because what I imagine gets lost oftentimes in this caring for others and maintaining social networks is that there's not often an attention to the care of the self in the midst of what is or what sounds like from your description, a very demoralizing job situation and a very kind of embattled attempt to find employment and maintain employment. So talk to me about self-care in the midst of all this. Yeah, so I'm bad at self-care. <laughs> no, I mean, it, I'm, I'm trying to get better, but it was one of those where, unfortunately, I kind of took on this idea that I should make sure that others are okay before I'm okay, pretty seriously, for a while when I was in the academy. But I think the kind of crucialness of doing that practice, where one of the ways I did this is that I, I love to walk, right, in nature. And so when things got bad, I would, like, call it my walk it off, right? Like, <laughs> just walk around campus, enjoy that the leaves are changing color, wave at my students, have a cup of coffee, right? So that I did have some moments. Uh, I'm an avid coffee drinker, so I just kind of quiet moments of doing my coffee and just not worrying about things, right? 
that I spend a lot of time now with self-care playing with my kids outside, right? That blowing bubbles is remarkably soothing when the world feels like it's falling apart because it's just a simple, repetitive <laughs> kind of gesture that you can do. But it, but it's so crucial, and it's so crucial for women because I think the cultural pressure we have is everybody before us, right? Our kids before us, our partners before us, our families before us. There's a point in the book where you quote the author Claire Vay Watkins, and the phrase that, that highlights or sticks out is for, for me is misogyny or animus against women, this structural sexism, it's the water that we swim in. Given that that's the reality, given that we're all swimming in this water, and you mentioned you know sitting down and watching movies on Netflix, well, the movies on Netflix are full of sexism. They're full, and so you, you, right, yeah. you, can't, you can't not participate in this culture of patriarchy and sexism. So I'm going to ask you a set of questions that I ask many of my guests, and I'm going to ask you, first of all, what it is that still frustrates you, given that we're swimming in this misogyny. And then I'm going to pivot right. from that and ask what it is that still keeps you hopeful. So first of all, what is it that is still frustrating you in this reality that we're living in? Oh. Oh my gosh, there's so much, right? Like, there's so much. I think what really frustrates me right now, anyway, is media coverage of women politicians and women public figures and this still, this tendency to want to talk about them as mothers or talk about their looks or talk about who they're married to or partnered with rather than understanding women as accomplished and talented, right, and looking at their credentials. So, I mean, it's always going to drive me a little bit batty when people focus on women's bodies and the men that they're attached to instead of focusing on what women have done in their lives. This is kind of a constant frustration that bears out. And I, every once in a while, think, oh, maybe it's getting better. And then I realize that it's not. So that's one of the main ones. The other thing that keeps me hopeful is that there are so many people now committed to activism, especially activism against gender-based violence and harassment and looking really hard at gender bias in different industries, right? So Me Too, which is very much a, a sharing of very harrowing life stories, right? Like you read through them and your heart just kind of breaks and is rended. But there's an honesty there and a desire that if our stories can make change, then we should tell our stories, right? And I think that kind of visibility and that willingness towards activism is something that helps me get up in the morning, right? There's so many people committed to this and they realize the wrongs that are here and realize how endemic sexism is. And there's still out there doing the work, right? And they're still out there trying to make the world better. And so when I'm having days where I feel like everything is terrible and it's on fire, I try to think about that kind of activism. And I try to think about my own activism, too. Like, what do I, what do I want my writing to do, right, fundamentally? And fundamentally, I want it to identify problems and get us to pay attention to them so that we can solve them, right? It could be small or it could be really unwieldy large problems, but that sort of that constant directive of like, what can we do is something that motivates me. 
Well, Dr. Kelly J. Baker, the candor and honesty that I encountered in this book was a convicting moment for me. I saw it very much as a mirror. And when I looked at myself in that mirror, I didn't always like what I saw. And that's that's motivating me to want to think about my own actions in the world. I just, I appreciate so much, not only you're taking the time to speak to us today, but the fact that you wrote this book, I think that it's a resource for many that want to understand this problem of sexism and want to learn how they can begin to contribute to the solutions. Thanks for taking time to speak to us today. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you again for having me. We've been speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's an independent scholar and freelance writer. Today, we've been discussing her most recent book, Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.